0: of the Golden Circle was a mysterious southern-based society that set out in 1859 to establish a slave empire in Mexico and points further south. In late 1860, it shifted its focus to supporting the secession movement and intimidating Unionists in the south. According to our speaker today, once the war began, the Knights helped build up the nascent Confederate army and carried out various clandestine actions, including an attempt to assassinate Abraham Lincoln as he passed through Baltimore in 1861. David Keene is a regulatory attorney by trade in Allentown, Pennsylvania, who has represented the federal government as well as private clients and corporations in a career spanning 40 years. He graduated from Gettysburg College, then went to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. With his wife, who is a noted children's author, David has co-authored a nonfiction book on Pennsylvania and has separately published a number of legal and civil war articles. Among these is Strong Arm of Secession, the Knights of the Golden Circle and the Crisis of 1861, which appeared in North and South magazine in 2008. This article brought Dave's historical discoveries regarding the Knights to the attention of Dr. Michael Parrish, editor of the Conflicting World series, for Louisiana State University Press. He spent another four years unraveling the secrets of the night of the Knights. He collected primary sources and rare images from archives and historical societies across the country. He expanded his research to encompass the nationwide reach of the Knights and their rearguard activities during the Civil War. This includes John Wilkes Booth's involvement as a knights leader, and the curious number of knights involved in the eighteen sixty one and sixty five attempts to abduct or assassinate President Lincoln. These have been revealed and documented in Dave's full-length book, Knights of the Golden Circle, Secret Empire, Southern Secession, Civil War. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for David Keene.
1: Thank you, Paul, and I'd also like to thank the uh, members of and staff of the Virginia Historical Society for having me, and I'd like to thank you all for turning out today. Uh, I did some research for my book here at the uh, Virginia Historical Society. Uh, I think as Paul mentioned, John Wilkes Booth joined the Knights in Richmond in uh, 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 1859, and uh, uh, the head of the Knights, the founder, is from Southwest Virginia. The uh, uh, Knights played a role in Virginia's secession crisis. I want to try to focus on Virginia elements today. So I thought this would be a, a very fitting place to speak. I also want to give you a sense of, of how my book came about. I, as Paul mentioned, was an attorney for 40 years with, uh, in different capacities, and I retired from my full-time practice in 2005 with the idea that I wanted to write a book. My wife's a noted author of historical fiction for young people, we wrote a travel book together, and I wanted to see what I could do on my own. I was a history major from Gettysburg College and uh, was interested in history and was hoping I could find some area in which I could make some new historical discoveries. I started out wanting to write about uh, the uh, secession struggle in Kentucky, and you may or may not be aware that Uh, In early 1861, uh, Kentucky was torn between uh, the Unionists and the secessionists in Kentucky. It was called the turning weight in the scale of war. And Lincoln reportedly said, I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. (laughs) While going through uh, microfilm at the uh, University of Kentucky in Lexington, I discovered repeated references to a secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle. Uh, many of the references were in the uh, Louisville Journal, which was a noted paper uh, throughout the country edited by this gentleman, uh, George Prentice. Prentice was a pro-union editor, and in these articles he was saying things like, uh, you know, that the, the knights were the central arm of the secession party in Kentucky. He said they had six castles in Louisville, and that there was a May convention in 1861 that was held at which 8,000 knights attended. Now, he was talking a lot about the, uh, uh, the head of the knights, a gentleman called George Bickley, and this was, is Bickley, who appeared then in the Louisville Courier, which was a paper down the street from the Louisville Journal in central Louisville, which is the pro-South paper. And uh, Bickley wrote a letter to the Louisville Courier. It was dated May 30th. Uh, He said that the Lincoln administration had instituted a legal crusade against his knights. He said that with regard to their secrecy, he had given their uh, uh, different rituals to the governor of Kentucky, uh, Beriah McGoffin, and he confirmed that there were 8,000 knights and uh, said that the work will be pushed with the utmost vigor until the tricolored flag of the Confederate states floats in triumph over the dome of the Capitol, in Frankfurt, and that's the capital in Frankfurt. Bickley claimed he already had sent 535 men to the Confederate Army from Kentucky and that further regiments were then forming. Prentice then followed up with a series of hard-hitting exposés on the Knights. Uh, In one of them, he uh, got material from the top, the super secret third degree of the Knights, uh, that was given him by uh, a turncoat that I'll mention in a minute. But this showed that the intention of that top degree was to establish a a slave empire in the southern hemisphere. Uh, The the golden circle that the Knights got its name from uh, encompasses the uh, the American South, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean islands. And the goal was to uh, uh, establish an empire equal to the grandeurs of ancient Rome, as they said in their ritual in which uh, you know, slavery would be established and the leaders of the super secret third degree would be placed in control in a monarchical type of government. Now the Knights used uh, uh, code words, passwords, uh, they had signs of recognition to each other. This is another uh, code that was during, used during the Civil War. And this A.A. Urban is the third degree knight from Louisville who actually gave the uh, uh, secret ritual documents to uh, Prentice that he then published. The Knights were organized on a hierarchical basis. At the bottom was the first degree called the Order of the Lone Hand. And the Order of the Lone Hand was the Knight's army, uh, which was at the high point probably composed of 10,000 members, and its regular membership, it was a total regular membership of around 50,000. The next degree was the Order of the True Faith. These were the enablers. These were the money men that backed the Knights' various missions. Uh, Also, the editors, for example, in Texas, the Knights had 20 different affiliated editors uh, who supported the work of the Knights. And the third degree was the Order of the Columbian Star. This was an an order which was supposedly contained top military and political leaders in the country. Uh, It was kept secret, even their identities were kept secret. And so they were in a position to formulate orders and, and directives for the knights and pass them down to the knights' army. And even the members of the knights' army, even the first degrees, didn't know who was in the super-secret super secret third degree of the knights. Well, I looked at this and thought, wow, this is uh, maybe the type what I'm looking for. And I put together a couple chapters of a book about the struggle in Kentucky uh, and took it in, back in Allentown and gave it to my next-door neighbor, who fortunately was a history professor at Muhlenberg College. And he took it off, and he read it, and he came back to me. We met a a few weeks later, and he said, Dave, let me tell you something. Uh, A lot of people are writing about Lincoln and the struggle. I said, I have never seen this material on the Knights of the Golden Circle before. He said, you should really concentrate on that. And I just did, and I've been thankful to him ever since. Well, one of the first places I went was to the Internet, and when you go on the internet, you'll find all kinds of myths and legends about the Knights of the Golden Circle. Some say that, that Booth was a member, which is true, uh, and that they were behind the Lincoln assassination. Some say that they buried gold throughout the South at the end of the Civil War so that the South could rise again. Uh, you may be familiar with this movie, uh, National Treasure 2. Uh, it's a 2008 movie by Disney. It begins with a castle of the Knights of the Golden Circle in Washington, the night before the Lincoln assassination, uh, the implication is that that Booth is there, and they go off and accomplish the assassination the next day. And then Nicholas Cage and his cohorts go off looking for gold across the uh, the South. Uh, so uh, uh, that that's a modern holiday, uh, modern Hollywood rendering. There were also uh, renderings during the Civil War. Uh, during the Civil War, there were several. They call them authentic expositions. By uh, members of the Knights. Uh, This is one example of the anonymous members. They didn't give their names. But some of these sold several hundred thousand copies. And uh, they made similar sensationalist allegations. For example, uh, they alleged that the members of the Buchanan administration, which was the administration that took over uh, before Lincoln assumed office in March of 61, were members of the Knights of the Golden Circle. And specifically they mentioned uh, Hal Cobb, who was Buchanan's uh, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, they mention uh, John Floyd, who was the Secretary of War from Texas, and they mentioned John Breckinridge from Kentucky, who was his Vice President and subsequently ran against Lincoln uh, for office on, on a states rights ticket. So I asked myself, how much of this could be true? And I set off to try to find out. And I looked in, uh, you know, historical uh, journals and historical treatises in the Civil War And they usually mention the Knights of the Golden Circle. There's usually a couple paragraphs about the Knights of the Golden Circle, but then they trail off into uncertainty. Uh, There was a 2003 book uh, written by a New York Times reporter and an Arkansas treasure hunter, and it has some history in it, but uh, uh, a lot of it's undocumented, and a lot of it's directed to treasure maps and things. There was a professor at Marquette, Frank Clement who did a lot of work on the knights in the Midwest during the Civil War, uh, and he really didn't find much. And so he, some of his things says, well, the knights were a myth, uh, but the problem is he was looking at the wrong time and the wrong place because the knights were dying out uh, during the Civil War. Several journal articles, probably the best one in the American Historical Review, by a, a historian named Ollinger Crenshaw that goes back to 1941 called The Career of George Bickley. I utilize five different newspaper searches. You can go now. Uh, there's different uh, websites or web that have hundreds of newspapers on them, and historic newspapers. And you can punch in like 1858 to 1865, put in Knights of the Golden Circle, press a button, and you might get a hundred, a couple hundred different newspapers. And uh, I discovered a uh, hundred different, hundreds of different contemporary art, news, newspapers about the Knights, and I knew that they were real. I also uh, Uh, found several uh, master's theses in Texas which were, uh, Texas for some reason, uh, like during the Civil War a lot of stuff about the Knights were destroyed, Texas it wasn't and so there's a lot of information on the Knights. One of these master's theses actually, uh, a professor, she's now a professor at a college, went across Texas, the archives and stuff and newspapers and came up with dossiers on 90 knights in Texas, as well as the 30 castles in eastern Texas. So I I said, and the knights were involved with the uh, uh, secession in Texas. They were also involved in the takeover of the 22 federal forts, including the Alamo, uh, where the US Army was there really to guard Texas uh, from the uh, uh, Mexicans and and Indians on the frontier. Uh, But they were a very powerful force in Texas, so I said, if they're this powerful in Texas, what about the rest of the country? And I set the fine now. And the Knights were formed uh, by this gentleman. This is young George Bickley. And Bickley's sort of a story unto himself. He uh, was born and raised in southwest Virginia. There's still, you go down there visit, there's Bickley Mills. Uh, there's several articles, by the way, some in the Virginia uh, Magazine of History and Biography, which I think is, is done here. There's one in the Bickleys of of Virginia, if you're interested in following up. But uh, he he was born there. His father died when he was young. He had a gallivanting mother. She would run around Petersburg and Richmond and she sent George off to uh, uh, live with his relatives in the south of Petersburg. And he grew up there sort of as a loner. And at the age of 12, uh, he left and uh, just left home. And he roamed around the south, uh, visiting in some cases relatives. He started a trading business in Alabama, uh, and then uh, uh, actually fathered uh, a son in North Carolina, uh, but he came back uh, to Southwest Virginia and set up a, uh, well, he studied under a, a doctor in, in Tazewell uh, for a year, which is the way you learn medicine those days, and then he went and opened up his own practice. And his specialty was phrenology which is sort of like a cross between uh, uh, brain surgery and astrology where you would read, <laughs> you would read people's, uh, uh, the bumps on their head to determine uh, you know, what, what their well-being is and what their future is going to be. And this as well as herbal medicine was his, uh, his general background. But he then went off, he, he, the one thing when, when George wandered around the South, he also became a very convincing uh, liar. And he could convince anyone of anything and he went to an upstart medical institute in Cincinnati and convinced them that he had studied in in Philadelphia and London, and so they appointed him as a medical professor. So he went to Cincinnati as a medical professor, and one of their courses was phrenology, and he taught there for a number of years. And then he decided there was an easier way, so he married a wealthy widow in Cincinnati uh, who was connected with the Kinney banking family. And so he went off with her to her, uh, uh, she had a farm in Sciota County, that's about 100 miles east of Cincinnati, and lived in her farm and could engage in all kinds of promotions and schemes. You know, he was uh, selling farm implements in Russia and uh, coal mines in the Dominican Republic. He started a journal called Bickley's West American Review, and it was dedicated to the principle of Manifest Destiny that was very popular at that time. And Manifest Destiny was the idea that the white race was going to sweep across uh, the American continent, and then once they got across the American continent, the idea was that it was also going to sweep south through the southern hemisphere. So he published that. He started a drill team. You know, it was very popular where uh, men would get together and they would drill and put on exhibitions, and they had inner-city exhibitions uh, where folks would get together. He got involved in, in several secret societies, uh, and uh, uh, he was doing well in all schemes until his wife discovered that, in addition to using her money, he was trying to put it in his own name. And so she got her brother to come in and kick Bickley out. And Bickley had to go hand in hand back to the Eclectic Medical Institute in Cincinnati, where he taught. And, uh, you know, he worked for a patent magazine. And it was during this period that he developed the ritual and the uh, structure of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Now, the, 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 the ritual was premised on very popular writer at the time, Sir Walter Scott, who wrote the, the book Ivanhoe, particularly popular in the South and, uh, uh, you know, the idea of the Shavaris knight in uh, and, and shining armor. And, uh, you know, actually in, in places like the southern resorts, the Greenbrier and the nearby resorts, they would hold jousting contests during that period where thousands of people would show up, like come out of Washington, and they would go to the resort, and there would be jousting, and there would be lords and ladies, and uh, it, it was just a very popular motif, with, which Bickley seized on. He stayed for a while, and then he headed south, and he went to uh, uh, the south, he went to plantation owners to try to raise money for his knights. He somehow linked up with a group called the Order of the Lone Star. Now, the Order of the Lone Star was a society that had been formed in 1851 by several uh, senators from Louisiana. And it's, it's, the idea was they wanted to invade Cuba and take over Cuba for the United States. And we hear of that now with the Bay of Pigs, but even they were, they were trying to do it then. And uh, the Order of the Lone Star had 50 chapters and 15,000 members. So Bickley's upstart. Society, which had some members in, you know, castles, they called them, in uh, Cincinnati and southern Ohio and Kentucky, now expanded greatly through the Order of the Lone Star. Uh, 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 The the, the purpose of the Order of the Lone Star was was called filibustering. And filibustering wasn't the legislative filibustering. Filibustering at the time was a noted military commander would go uh, raise young men, often idle young men in uh, uh, port cities like San Francisco, New Orleans, and, uh, and even New York, and form an army, and then he would go cut a deal with, uh, in Central America or South America with one of the warring factors factions, because those countries were often at war, and would go in and take over those countries. Probably the most successful filibuster was called William Walker, who was a Tennessee medical doctor, and he led a band of immortals into Nicaragua in 1855, and they were connected with the Leon faction in Nicaragua, and they were able to take over Nicaragua, and they reinstituted slavery, and he be- they made Walker president, and he was doing all right until he crossed uh, Commodore Vanderbilt in his shipping interest, and Vanderbilt funded the surrounding countries to kick Walker out. Well, this was a similar filibuster. This was allied around a Mexican war general named John Quitman, Quitman had been governor of Mississippi, he headed the division that went into Mexico City during the Mexican War, he was a bonafide leader, uh, and he was able to raise, sub reports said, 50,000 men and a million dollars to go into Cuba in 1855. And they were gearing up with this, they were fitting ships, everything looked like it was ready to go, when all of a sudden Uh, The Pierce administration that was in power in Washington and had given tacit approval to the filibuster changed its position. And now they called in, Stephen Douglas was involved, uh, I think the senator from Virginia. uh, Pierce called him in and said, the filibuster's off. If you proceed with this, I'm going to arrest you under the Neutrality Act. So it caused, and the reason why was they had passed Uh, You know, the Cubans were, the Spanish who owned Cuba were very upset about the filibuster and they were going to arm the slaves to defend Cuba. But the real reason was the Congress had passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed slavery north of the Missouri Compromise Line and created a firestorm across the north. That's the reason that brought Abraham Lincoln into politics. And uh, Pierce felt he just couldn't deal with this firestorm and still let a, a filibuster mission go off to Cuba. So it was squelched. Uh, Quitman gave up the mission, and the, the, the Order of the Lone Star merged and joined with the Knights of the Golden Circle. And they were really the power behind the throne. Bickley was more of a front man. Anyway, Bickley went off to Baltimore and Washington to form his knights on a more formal basis. This is the American Cavalier newspaper that Bickley published in Wa- in Baltimore in 1860. Also in Washington, uh, there was reports of a, a number of Lincoln's cabinet members reading it. Uh, but it was a military journal uh, to extend American civilization in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's clear from the paper that they now had moved from Cuba to Mexico, and we're now looking at Mexico as the target. Uh, there were castles of the Knights of the Golden Circle in uh, Baltimore at the time. Uh, this is in 1859. This is St. Vincent's Church down near the dock area in Baltimore. Uh, there was a castle there. Among the members was uh, Michael Lachlan, who and his brother William, who were uh, later involved. As Michael, anyway, was later involved in the uh, the, the Lincoln abduction. But uh, they met. John Wilkes Booth joined the Knights here in Richmond in 1859. Uh, he was appearing as an actor at the uh, uh, Richmond Gen- Dramatic uh, Star Company, it was owned by John T. Ford. And uh, he, it's documented, that he and several other members of the company went off and joined the Knights, which were then sweeping the country. But it's likely, since he was a very close friend of the Lachlan, and when when Booth went back to Baltimore, he had a family at a townhouse in the winter, he also uh, participated in a Knights castle there. Uh, There's also uh, reports that when Booth went off in November of 1859 to join the Richmond Grays uh, to go uh, to watch the hanging of John Brown, Uh, It was because of his Knights' connections here in Richmond that he was able to jump on the train, even though he wasn't actually a a Richmond gray. Another member in Baltimore was this gentleman, Cipriano Ferrandini. He was a hairdresser at Barnum's Hotel, which was the hotel where the Southerners stayed. Uh, He also was a militia drillmaster in Baltimore and actually had gone off to Mexico and helped drill the Mexican liberal army uh, during the period when the Knights were uh, forming an alliance with him. Uh, he also headed a cabal that had planned to assassinate Lincoln when he passed through Baltimore in February of 1861. The leader of the Knights, uh, reg- well, this is his Knight certificate. When you were an officer, this is the certificate that you got. It showed Ferrandini was a captain, and he joined the Knights in August of 1859, which is when they held the convention that I'll mention in a second. Uh, this is Robert Charles Tyler. He was the head of the Division of Knights. In, uh, in Baltimore and in Maryland. Uh, and he was actually a, one of Walker's lieutenants in Nicaragua in the Band of Immortals. He came back to Baltimore, became a clerk, and he spent most of his time recruiting for the Knights of the Golden Circle. There was a political counterpart, political leaders, uh, like in Baltimore was William Byrne, who was a Breckenridge elector and the head of a group called the National Volunteers, which was a militia. Uh, There's a John McMahon who was a fiery attorney in Baltimore that represented their rising merchants. There's also testimony that the Knights were in Washington at Temperance Hall is where they met at 4th and a a Half Street. A gentleman named L. Q. Washington was their political leader, and he was closely allied, one of his best friends was Lewis Harvey, who was one of the the secessionists leading uh, the secessionist element in the Virginia Secession Convention. Well, the Knights met at the Greenbrier Hotel in southwest Virginia in uh, August of 1859 during the summer season, and reportedly 80 to 100 top political and military leaders from around the country came. I only have the names of four or five who were documented to be there, but I have the names of a lot of other people who were at the Greenbrier at that time. But this was thought to be the initial meeting of the, the secret... Uh, Knights of the Columbian Star, which was the third degree, the oral degree that I mentioned. And uh, somewhat supported by this, like the next month in Washington, they published the rules and regulations of the knights. Uh, This is a slick 60-page book. It's got their constitution. It's got their maxims. It explains, uh, you know, how to set up a castle, where to send the money. It has orders. It, It talks about gearing up for northern Mexico. Accompanying this was a, a, a secret book called Their Degree Works, which was their ritual and described, again focused on northern Mexico, had a separate rit- ritual for each one of the third degrees. These are contained, by the way, in the Bickley papers, which are at the National Archives as a trunk load of Knights related documents that were captured when Bickley was captured going north in uh, the summer of 1863. Now, the, the Knights initially. Uh, focused, as I said, on on, on on Mexico. Mexico at the time was engaged in a horrendous civil war. In the, the central part, the more populous part of Mexico was controlled by a, a Mexican general named Miramar, while the coastal re- region was controlled by a constitutional lawyer. He had been a Zapata Indian uh, from uh, southern Mexico named Bonito Juarez and has become a folk hero in Mexico. But in any event, Juarez and Miramar, their armies for the clash for years. Neither could gain the ascendancy, and the knights offered their services of their army to both sides. Uh, but they, uh, they ended up making a deal not with Juarez himself, but with some of the provincial leaders of Juarez in northern Mexico that said, "Come on in and what they call colonize uh, northern Mexico." And they were getting ready to move. There was uh, This gentleman is, was the knight leader in uh, Texas, O'Connor Greer. Uh, Greer had been fought with Jefferson Davis's first Mississippi regiment in, in the uh, uh, Mexican War. He went back to Mississippi, became head of their militia. He then went to uh, Marshall, Texas and became a planner and, and more married into a prominent family there. And, uh, you know, he started working with the Knights at that point. Actually, he spent so much time working with the Knights that his wife and their prominent family accused him of uh, deserting the family and his kids. But he was very active, and he was the one pushing for this intervention in, in Mexico. He said, I have, he, he told the old order of the Lone Star, you know, Louisiana and uh, Mississippi and the, the four or five other states that had been most active, the Texas Knights have two regiments and half a million dollars, and we're ready to go. Won't you support us? Won't you give us the the rest of the money to come? And so what happened was, in uh, May, March of 1860, several thousand knights appeared on the Texas-Mexican border, uh, ready to intervene in Mexico. And by, by this time, by the way, Bickley was up north. He got word that the, uh, Greer and others were going to jump off in this. He rushed down, uh, told them he hold on. He's going to bring an army of a division of knights from the east, and uh, he's going to bring another million dollars and just look, give him time. Uh, and he did. The knights did come from Virginia, New York, and uh, the Midwest. For the, they did come to Southern Texas, but Bickley showed up empty-handed, and he had didn't have the money. So they had to go off, and they had to go to Georgia and Alabama to try to raise more money. And while this was happening, the knights in New Orleans rebelled, and actually it was Jefferson Davis's brother-in-law, who was a filibuster, Joseph Howell, uh, who uh, basically put in the paper that Bickley was a uh, a sham and a hoax, and he was sorry that he had gotten all this. There were supposedly 750 knights ready to jump in the ship from uh, New Orleans to join in this filibuster, and and Joseph Howell apologized to him. Well, Bickley rushed in. He tried to make peace. He tried to explain what had happened. Uh, Howell and the other leaders wouldn't have have it. There was a schism of the knights in New Orleans and Alabama, and Bickley rushed to Montgomery, Alabama, where he... uh, uh, declared this is the new headquarters of the Knights. And he called the new convention of the Knights at Raleigh, North Carolina in May of 1860, and he melodramatically gave up his position as the head of the Knights Army and the head of its political ring. So they held the convention, attended mostly by Eastern Knights in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, Bickley was rein- reinstated as the head of the political ring because he had all the connections in Washington and Baltimore, but he was not reinstated at the head of the Knights Army, and the Knights Army went off its own separate way. And it was really the uh, the leaders of the Knights in each state. It now became a decentralized organization headed by people like Greer. Uh, you know, I mentioned Tyler. Uh, th- th- I'll get to the others in a second. This is a, a key document that we found, and my friends here with me today at the Norfolk uh, Reading Room. We had heard that among the other papers, the Norfolk Southern Argus was a paper affiliated with the Knights. This is a, a, an order sent from Bickley to Virginia Skroner, who was the head of the Knights in Virginia and North Carolina. And uh, it, attached to it, it's calling the convention, but attached to it was a five or six page circular letter from Bickley, in which he describes the Knight leaders in each of the southern and border states, as well as the size of the Knights' army in each state some of which were forming and stuff, but some of which he could name the leaders and name the size of the army. And actually the Knights at the time centered in three areas, You know, Texas and Arkansas, they had about 3,500 members. It was in like Alabama, Mississippi, and uh, uh, Georgia, About a, they had maybe 3,000. And in uh, Virginia, North Carolina, and Maryland, there was another 3,000. So those were the power centers of the Knights, uh, as spelled out in his circular letter, it allowed me to go, this is the first time everyone in the past has never gone beyond Bickley, and, they, and Bickley's kind of a flake, and so they come up with the idea the Knights were, really weren't much. But in looking at who their state military leaders were, these guys were very substantial leaders, guys like Greer, guys like Tyler. Virginia Skroner was a noted lawyer in Richmond. He had, uh, he, in Norfolk, he had been going to military academy. He had been... Uh, uh, you know, he went off to Texas. He knew Sam Houston. He became fort with the Texas Rangers, which had many Knight members. Came back uh, and reestablished the Knights in in Norfolk and uh, also uh, North Carolina. And uh, then he, he was uh, one of the first officers who joined the Confederate Army on behalf of Mississippi, because Virginia had not seceded at that point. And was, uh, according to his obituary, the guy that under Walker had transmitted the order to Beauregard to fire on Fort Sumter. So these were not insubstantial people who were the heads of the Knights. Uh, this is a picture of Groner, I think it's from, from the society here, or maybe the. the. This is uh, Paul J. Semmes in Columbus, Georgia. Semmes was the cousin of uh, Raphael Semmes, the noted Confederate raider, uh, and uh, he had formed. Uh, a military unit in Columbus, the Columbus Guards, that were so well-known, they headed Jefferson Davis's inauguration parade. He was picked by the government of Georgia, Georgia Brown, to recruit when the war looked like it was going to break out for Georgia. He was sent to New York to buy weapons, and uh, he actually recruited uh, a fair part of the 1st Georgia Regiment and became the Brigadier General of the 2nd Georgia Regiment. The Knights, the, these these powerful leaders were tied together by roving ambassadors. This is Ben McCulloch, who was a, uh, a noted Texas ranger. Uh, he was a confidant of Sam Houston. He, he, at the time he traveled the South, he was an arms dealer for Colt and other arms manufactured. That gave him the perfect opportunity to tie in with uh, night leaders and the Southern governors, and in some cases, the fire eaters, the, uh, those that were pushing for secession in the South. And he was actually there uh, in South Carolina, uh, reporting back to Houston as South Carolina was getting ready to secede. Uh, the, uh, so, so the knights were now controlled by uh, these uh, state leaders, state military commanders who were uh, tied together loosely by guys like McCulloch and Groner. Groner traveled at, through, through Mississippi. Now, the Knights, at that point, the the state leaders, Bickley still wanted to go to New Mexico, but the state leaders said, no, uh, we're going to go, we're going to support the southern governors and our other goal, which is supporting southern rights, and if we move towards secession, we're going to stay here and see what happens. And they did that, and, uh, you know, the Knights uh, now moved over to supporting secession. They became a domestic police force in the south, Uh, where they were silenced unionists, uh, uh, people who opposed secession were in some cases kicked out. The slogan of the Knights were, we have an army, we can become a nucleus for the southern army in the event of secession. For example, the Charleston Mercury of October 31st, and that was controlled by a a southern fire eater named Barnwell Rhett said, the Texans are almost to a man for a fight. If the abolitionist Lincoln should be elected, they regard Bickley's forces as the most available nucleus for an army. And the Knights became cores of groups that were then spontaneously springing up, or it seems spontaneously, called the Minutemen throughout the South and here in Virginia, and also the National Volunteers, which were formed in Baltimore, uh, Washington, and New York. The Knights now shifted their goal uh, to supporting secession, exercised strong-arm tactics. There's a report from an Army informer that uh, the Knights held a castle of war in Texas in November of 1860 in which they talked about capturing U.S. forts in the south, and they did this, they did, they captured the uh, forts, uh, 22 forts along the Texas frontier, uh, Ship Island in Mississippi, uh, also forts in North Carolina, and Groner and Henry Wise, who was affiliated with the Knights, uh, tried to capture Fortress Monroe in the Norfolk Harbor in, uh, you know, late 1860. Uh, actually, uh, when, when they tried to do this, they were ready to go. They brought the proposal to Governor Letcher, who was the moderate governor of Virginia at the time. Letcher said, well, I only approve it if you can get others to sign off. And they rightly thought, well, let's start getting others to sign off. That is treason. We're not going to do that. And so the whole thing fell apart. But Henry Wise just became... A rate over this, and it's the reason why he took some of the strong tactics that he did during Virginia's secession crisis. In any event, uh, this is Fortress Monroe, uh, which they were trying to capture at the time. It was lightly guarded. Uh, there was also an attempt to seize Washington in late 1860. Uh, uh, ben McCulloch was there in northern Virginia. Reportedly, there were 500 Texas Rangers. Stanton talked about they were casing the uh, federal defenses. There was a committee appointed in early 1861, the Howard Committee of Five to investigate whether the Knights were trying to take over the capital and uh, they they studied it. They actually called guys like Ferrandini down from Baltimore who testified before the committee and they basically didn't say we're trying to take stuff over or trying to kill Lincoln. They said we're just forming militia to try to prevent uh, Northern Truths from coming through Maryland. Uh, so the committee ended up deciding that there might have been a conspiracy to take over Washington, but it was dependent on the secession of Maryland or Virginia, and both, and those didn't take place. And meanwhile, General Scott had, Winfield Scott brought in uh, a number of companies of the Army and uh, squelched the idea, and so it wasn't pursued. At this point, uh, an- another key gentleman who was from Marshall, Texas, Connected with the Knights was Louis Wigfall. Louis uh, was from South Carolina. He had been going to Texas, uh, became a, a southern rights se- senator from Texas. When he was head in, in the, the Senate, he was the leader of the group in the Senate that were pushing uh, for secession. And many of the other senators left, like Senator Mason of Virginia, but he stayed uh, sort of the as intelligence to say what the Unionists were thinking and he actually went off to Baltimore uh, to help recruit companies of the national volunteers that then went to South Carolina and helped with the investiture of Fort Sumter. This is, uh, uh, we found this in the, the Harford County Historical Society where, where Bill, uh, John Wilkes Booth was from. This is another leader north of Baltimore named Robert Harris Archer. Archer was a Knights Colonel appointed in New York in December of 1860 and uh, he was uh, Wigfall's counterpart. He also uh, recruited companies of uh, men who went to uh, South Carolina. Uh, Now, in in the July of 1860, I decided to take together, put together what I had uh, and put it in in an article for North and South magazine called Strong Arms Secession. It talked about the role that the Knights played in the secession of Texas, uh, the apparent role in Virginia, uh, their efforts in Kentucky and uh, uh, in Maryland, and uh, it was it was published. And out of the article, it was read by uh, Dr. Michael Parrish, who's the head of the uh, History Department at Baylor University, and also for the imprint of LSU Press, the Conflicting Worlds imprint, and he basically said... You know, if, we, if I wanted to write a book, which I noted in the article I was working on, they would really welcome to publish it and confirm what Dan Wilson had said. This is one of the few areas of Civil War history that really needs to be covered. So that gave me the, uh, uh, the idea that I wanted to go on. Now, we won't be able to cover everything. The Knights were uh, involved in the Pratt Street riots in Baltimore in April of 61. Actually, John Wilkes Booth came ba- back at the end of those Uh the Knights contributed men and leaders to the Southern Army. It helped the Southern Army uh, go from nothing in February of 1861 to 200,000 men by September. And in places like Texas and Arkansas, whole castles of the Knights were joining in mass. Their initial names of the Southern unit was called the Knights of the Golden Circle units. And they six of the six of the uh, uh, Confederate brigadier generals. Were leaders. Many of them, the gentlemen I mentioned, and like like Greer, Groner became a colonel. He was head of the sixty-first Virginia Infantry. Uh, you know, Tyler became a brigadier general of the uh, Army of Tennessee. So uh, the other thing was with the knights' role in the secession crisis in Virginia. Uh, I mentioned Henry Wise uh, yeah, after the effort to take over Fort Bruce Monroe. You know, Virginia initially when they held the election for. Uh, secession, uh, people were surprised because there was only 20 percent who voted for immediate secession. You know, most of the members were sort of contingent. They were waiting to see what was going to happen. Virginia had called a peace convention to try to to establish peace before this uh, war broke out. Uh, and so they, they kept the convention going, but after the peace convention failed and they couldn't reach a compromise, Uh, The the, the secession element in Virginia's convention became more and more active and it was led by Henry Wise who was the former governor. And Wise sent out a circular letter to uh, uh, 100 to 200 different men across Virginia, southern rights supporters saying come to Richmond on a certain day and uh, put pressure on the convention. I didn't say that in so many terms but if you read between the lines. And there was William Edwards who was uh, one of the delegates from western Virginia said, all of a sudden hundreds of, uh, he called them wild-eyed, long-haired strangers came and he said many of them were members of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Uh, Wise and his, uh, they put pressure on the convention, o, O.J.'s son uh, was the head of the Virginia, one of the militia they helped to put pressure on the convention uh, and then there were actually a, a plot to take over get rid of Letcher, ab- abduct him and abduct some of the Unionist members of the convention uh, so that Virginia could uh, go ahead and vote to secede. Well, it sort of came to a head, uh, like in, in April, there was a group that went to to Lincoln, that three members to try to see whether he would compromise. Uh, he basically said, I'm gonna hold and defend the forts in the south, which wasn't what they wanted to hear. Even the Unionist member uh, was disappointed and they came back and they reported and then a group formed the Spontaneous People's Convention a block from the main convention and several hundred southern rights leaders uh, attended this convention in Richmond and they were putting pressure on the regular convention. And then Wise, General, uh, Governor Wise by himself issued an order to uh, John Imboden and others in western Virginia and folks down at the Gosport Navy, Navy Yard in Norfolk to go ahead and take it over on his own authority. And he then went to the convention the next day, he brought out a large horse pistol, he put it on the podium, and he said to the delegates, you know, I've, I've just issued orders on my own authority to take over, it's now time to vote. And Virginia then voted 85, I think it was 55, for secession. Uh, and uh, there, was, there was a popular vote afterwards which was kind of anti- anticlimactic because by then a month later, Virginia had already allied its, uh, its folks with the southern cause. So uh, Wise also talked about trying to take over Washington at the time, but nobody uh, would, would agree to push it. Now, in our, in our own area where I'm from, I'm from Brooks County in Lehigh County, Pennsylvania, and actually people are very proud because before the Pratt Street riots, uh, the first defenders, they called them, were the, the, the first group that went to defend the Capitol came from our area and they got through Baltimore uh, before there was rioting and, and, and set up in the Capitol, but we also had uh, oh, this is Henry Wise. We also had castles of the Knights of the Golden Circle in our area. Particularly many of the farmers by 1863 when they were drafting and uh, they passed the Emancipation Proclamation, there was a lot of uh, dissension and castles were formed. This is where they, uh, an early castle meeting place in Lynn Township which is a rural area outside of Lehigh County. Uh, and actually they met there until the unionists threatened to blow it up and then they moved to another location. Uh, but in Berks County, uh, where I'm from, there was a castle of the uh, uh, Knights of the Golden Circle near Wommelsdorf, which is where Paul's from, and uh, they apparently met a couple hundred in a barn in Stouchburg, and knights were arrested in Reading, uh, which is the, the local county seat, and taken to Philadelphia, three of the knights' leaders, in April of 1863. So there were knights in the north. Uh, John Wilkes Booth Well, you know, Lincoln, there were continual threats against the Lincoln. We mentioned Ferrandini's threat. Uh, One of the most poignant threats to me is a threat that was sent to Joseph Holt, who was the judge advocate general under Lincoln. And his aunt wrote from Louisville saying, Joseph, your son John has joined this group called the Knights of the Golden Circle, and they're talking about, uh, you know, assassinating uh, the president and his cabinet, which he happened to be almost a member. You know, what are we going to do about it? But there were threats also from Marion, uh, Ohio, uh, where the Knights were uh, uh, threatening the assassination of Lincoln. John Wilkes Booth uh, was a member of the Knights. As mentioned, he he joined in Richmond. He worked with the Knights in the Midwest in smuggling and for quinine and intelligence during the Civil War. And uh, uh, there was just a suspicious number of Knights uh, who were related to Booth in both the abduction plot and the assassination plot of Lincoln. For example, uh, the Lachlan brothers I already mentioned, they were documented Knights of the Golden Circle. Uh, the stagehand Edmund Spangler, uh, who held the door after the assassination or cleared the way, uh, was reputedly a knight. The costumer at Ford's Theatre that night was Lewis Carlin, and he was one of the documented knights that joined at the time, a Booth joined in Richmond uh, during the Civil War. He was a member of the Acting Country Company. Robert Harris Archer, uh, the colonel that I mentioned from Hartford County, he was picked up with another party from Virginia in a boat in the Potomac River at the time that Booth and Harold were expected to cross. Many people saying that they thought that uh, he was trying to work with them. The head of the Knights in Tennessee sent a strange letter to uh, uh, Stanton uh, talking about identifying Booth's body. Uh, The spymaster of Northern Virginia, a gentleman named Cornelius Boyle, who was at Gordonsville, where Booth was heading, uh, had been uh, the leader of the National Volunteers in Washington and a prominent doctor before the war, and here he appears to have been identified by the Knights. I mean, the fact that I can identify some members of the Knights doesn't mean that other people weren't, you know, I've been pretty cautious and and look for really credible evidence, um, but nobody after the war uh, wanted to say they were members of the Knights of the Golden Circle, even though they did have 8,000 members in these different areas. Several of the conspirators confessed that uh, many more were involved than the eight that were ultimately convicted. Uh, Powell said that uh, you haven't got half of them. Davy Harold said there was another 25 involved. Uh, Henry Burnett, the special judge advocate brought in to review the evidence, said, "I find the footprints of the Knights of the Golden Circle crossing my path in all directions." This is a wood print at the Library of Congress. It shows. Bickley as the theory of the assassination, Booth as the practice, and Lincoln as the martyred president. Well, I submitted my draft to LSU Press in, in 2009, thinking I was almost done. Uh, it's an academic press, and you may know with academic presses you have uh, academic readers, uh, usually noted authorities in the area, who ask you a lot of questions, and so I obviously got back a lot of questions and spent another year uh, responding to those questions, which significantly helped the manuscript. Um, and, uh, finally, it was, uh, they had a second reader, Dr., uh, uh, Dr. Robert May from Purdue, who read it, and uh, he, Dr. May's written several books in the filibusters, and he finally recognized what I had accomplished, and his comments are in the back of the book, but he basically told LSU Press, you must publish this book and uh, he described it as a chronologically structured, fast-paced, and clearly written narrative. I tried to write the text for the average reader uh, to keep it interesting and put a lot of the stuff interesting to scholars and endnotes in the back. Uh, So this was significant for LSU to uh, offer me a contract to publish the book. There's still more work to do. I wanted to have photos of the Knights' leaders. Many of these were uh, rare photos, some of which I obtained here from the Virginia Historical Society, so there's a photo gallery in the book. I needed to come up with a cover. This was my suggestion. That's the, uh, uh, shows the Golden Circle area, it's an antique map with the uh, the, the flag of the Knights as they were going into uh, to Mexico. We had to review page proofs, we had to create an index, uh, develop a publicity campaign. My daughter had been an editor and she's running my website www.davidkeen.com. In conclusion, it took me much longer than than I ever imagined. Seven years. Each of the chapters became a separate research thing because it takes place with the Knights in different areas of the country. And so you just couldn't go to one area and get one set of manuscripts to write the book. But it was a fascinating journey, and I think I made a number of notable historical discoveries. I have shown that the Knights were more powerful than historians have previously assumed and played a more central role in the outbreak of the Civil War. Bickley, in his abbreviated biography, claimed, quote, I have built up practical secession and inaugurated the greatest war in history. And to a certain extent, he's right. So thank you. I think we may have a few minutes for some questions, if uh, anyone has any. You mentioned that the uh, Knights declined as the war wore on. Did they linger on uh, after that and have any relationship to the formation of the Ku Klux Klan? I, uh, you know, the Knights, they were there in Tennessee around Pulaski. Uh, they had a castle, uh, and you know that's where they, the Klan started, and Nathan Bedford Forrest was active. I have not found any uh, definitive evidence showing that the Klan grew out of the Knights or that Bedford Forest was involved in the the, the, uh, uh, Knights. But I suspect, I mean, I I suspect they were, but as I said, I've been very cautious in saying who was, unless I have definitive proof, I have not said people were members of the Knights. So I can't prove that. I'm suspected though. Yes.
0: did you find any connection between the Knights of the Golden Circle and the Masonic fraternity?
1: I have not, there, there was a book, I mentioned the book by the New York Times reporter called uh, Rebel Gold. And he makes a big thing about a connection uh, between the Knights and the Masons, which didn't make the Masons very happy. But uh, <laughs> I, I have not found, uh, I mean, I, people at that a that error, you know, they didn't have TV. So, what men did for entertainment, they went off and got involved in a secret society. And so they were both, you know, a man who was interested in that could very well have been interested in the Masons, but I have not found any, any connection. This book claims that uh, Albert Pike, who was the head of the Scottish rights clan of the Masons, or the group of the Mason, was a leader in the Knights. And when I looked at, at Pike, I found that Pike was a Whig. He really didn't fit the, the Southern rights profile of the Knights. And so I have real suspicions whether they're... it was undocumented why they thought Pike was a knight. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I have not found a connection. Right. Yeah. You, have,
0: you have answered the question relating to the uh, Ku Klux Klan, but I'm curious about the flag, which looks very similar to some of the Confederate states' flags. Do those stars have
1: any significance as to why there are nine stars in the blue field? Well, the, the flag I have on the cover of the book, it has 11... Uh, it has 11 stars, and those were supposed to represent the 11 states that ultimately joined the Confederacy. I think they included Kentucky, and I believe Missouri in, in in that, even though those were split. So that that had that was related. And there's actually a flag in Marshall, Texas, where there the Confederate flag of the unit that went off to war uh, from from it's either Marshall or Tyler. Uh, has the Knights Maltese cross on it, on the flag of uh, the Confederate regiment from that area, so there, there's a crossover, uh, at least to that to that extent.
0: Your research sounds great. It's so new. Uh, and exciting to hear something totally new. But my question to you is the Knights of the Golden Circle, is there a connection with that group and the group that went to um, South America after the war to set up their own kind of Gulf government or country where they had slavery and so forth?
1: Well I think that's a good question. As you know many of the Confederate generals and others uh, left after the war to go to northern Mexico and I suspect that uh, like uh, Gwen, and the Knights were act- actually active in Oregon and California and one of their leaders was Senator Gwen who was in Virginia he had tried to set up he had been working with the the Mexican government in 1864 to try to set up a uh, uh, a group and then the Mexico you may know was taken over by the French Maximilian uh, during the war, but at the end of the war, Juarez kicked them out. And so th- there were Confederates that went to northern Mexico and set up colonies in northern Mexico. I suspect that in part it was their connections with the Knights and with the same provincial leaders before the war that allowed them to now go and set it up. I don't, I don't think there, there wasn't an attempt, to my knowledge, to reinstitute slavery or anything, but there was colonization of uh, former Confederates in Mexico. And I think it was probably related to the, you know, the, the interactions they had before the war. Yes. Uh, yes, sir. By the map that you have, that's pretty... Uh, uh, obvious that the southern um, gentlemen who were interested in the southern phase of the Knights uh, had a projective of uh, white supremacy and uh, s- the setting of slavery in the northern part of South America, Central America, and the Caribbean uh, uh, islands, and as well as the southern Gulf co- uh, Coast of the U.S., uh, what was the primary objective of the knights who lived in Pennsylvania and Ohio and uh, in that area? Was it any difference, or were they just there to raise a ruckus to disturb people up in that area? <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's interesting. The idea, and I, I, the slave empire thing, I'm, I'm not going to, again, it's just the top level that was into that even in the South. But, you know, the idea of the U.S. taking over the Southern Hemisphere was actually a very popular idea of the Democratic Party. Uh, Stephen Douglas, for example, uh, that he was, a, he was a, an expansionist. Uh, the conventions of the Democratic Party that was held before the war, they actually had part of their plank was the takeover of Cuba. And so they initially tried to do it with money and things. It wasn't always sending in, in an army. But the whole idea of Manifest Destiny now moving south was uh, not just a southern institution. In New York City, in particular, uh, there, were, there were guys there, the mayor, former, the mayor at the time, Fernando Wood. Uh, so the, and, and the other thing, is during the war with uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania, largely the interests grew up over the civil liberty problems in the north, and I guess they did in the south, as you're in, in war, you know, there were crackdowns in the press, there were crackdowns on southern sympathizers, uh, crackdowns on opposition people and so a lot of the Knights in uh, in the Midwest and uh, New York City and other places that developed were opposing the crackdown in the uh, uh, you know the crackdowns of the northern things. It didn't mean that they were necessarily allied with the cause of the South or in favor of secession. as a matter of fact I'm making a, a presentation next week at the conference in Gettysburg about, uh, whether the Knights were behind Morgan's 1863 raid uh, in the north, and Morgan went uh, into uh, Indiana and Ohio in 1863 expecting that, uh, you know, the, the farmers who were called Copperheads in southern, uh, in southern parts of Indiana and Ohio were going to embrace him and his men, and he found they weren't, and he became very disturbed, and it was because he didn't realize at the time that their goal wasn't the same as the southern goal. And it didn't take till 64 that there was, they sent, the the South sent commissioners to Canada to try to engage the Northern Copperheads on their own terms. Uh, So there was a different objective, and the farmers, and I think the farmers in uh, Pennsylvania where I'm from were more concerned about the draft than they and their sons were going to get drafted. And that was the reason why they had the, plus the civil liberties issues, that was the reason why there was opposition.